0: Trust the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, LawPay. The practice of law has changed significantly in the past decade, and perhaps the biggest disruption arrived in March, when the coronavirus pandemic forced most lawyers to leave their offices and work remotely. There's been challenges and fears for the profession, as well as a necessity to quickly change the way something that has always been done. That's hard for lawyers. The ABA Journalist asked an answer to starting a special series about how they've done it and what they think will come next. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and today my guest is Molly Coleman. She's a 2020 graduate of Harvard Law School, and she's also a co-founder of the People's Parity Project, a nationwide activist network of law students and new attorneys that has been a major force in getting large law firms to drop mandatory arbitration and no-suit agreements as conditions of employment. Molly, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Stephanie. Excited to be here.
0: Well, great. So uh, usually before I do my interviews, I look through my guest Twitter feeds, and I discovered that you were from St. Paul, and you moved back home right around the same time that George Floyd was killed while in police custody. What I wanted to ask you off first off is if your your background is civil rights work, then going back home right around the same time this happened, and it's in your hometown, what was that like and has it changed your outlook at all on civil rights for people
1: yeah absolutely i mean i feel incredibly lucky to be here right now i like you said i moved back a week or two before george floyd was murdered and having the ability to be in proximity with the community right now has been um there's no place else i would rather i would rather be right now i think seeing the ways in which a movement has been catalyzed the ways in which we are going to see big structural reform not just here in the twin cities but i believe around the country as a result of this murder and the uprisings that are taking place again here in the twin cities but around the world and it's really reinforced to me what the role of a lawyer should be the people who are leading this are not lawyers. It is not even the civil rights lawyers. It is activists, community members on the ground. And if I think about what is my role as a lawyer and what is, what is the role of law students and lawyers everywhere, it's to follow. We should be supporting. We should be here, you know, in the moment, we should be legal observing, ensuring that cops aren't allowed to violate the rights of protesters with impunity. But we should also be... Thinking about long-term, whose voices are we listening to and who's at the table? And for the most part,
0: I don't think that's lawyers. And I wanted to ask you how you think social media is playing a role in changing um, with civil rights for people. I I have been struck with the momentum that your organization had on Twitter getting firms to throw out the no-suit agreements. And now I think that younger people, perhaps, or people in your age group— it's not just Twitter, you know, it's all these different platforms. And can you talk a bit about have you seen stories get shared and momentum get built on social media during the past couple of months?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, I think all of the ways in which it's been used to organize, right? So we're seeing here in the Twin Cities, folks are using Twitter to do real-time updates about what the needs of different communities are. Where do they need toilet paper brought? Where do they need food brought? Where are they full on um, women's hygiene products, where are they in need of X, Y, Z, and how do you match the resources available with um, the supplies that I need? So I think even just that feels transformative to me, that people are able to truly support their community in the way that's needed and not the way that they think is best when they're able to get those real-time updates. We're seeing people who are planning a community, You know, especially after the first few days of the protests, there is a need for community cleanups. That call would go out on Twitter, it would go out on Facebook, hundreds of people would show up to support. Same with the actions themselves. Um, There's a real way to connect with a larger audience and not just with your small circle, whatever that circle may be. I think the other thing that's so important here is the way in which social media can act as an equalizer. I think that it can allow people to have conversations with those in positions of power that you might not be able to have if it required you to set up a meeting, go to an office, get pre-screened by somebody's staff, you're able to tweet at the mayor of Minneapolis and tell him that you don't appreciate his lack of support for defunding the police. You're able to communicate with the senators, the Republican senators in Minnesota, who have said that there's no chance for police reform this year. So I think that that has been its so powerful to see and how people are forced you, know, you can you can mute people but if you're on twitter you can't you can't shut down the whole conversation you're forced to grapple with the pain that people are expressing the calls for change that people are expressing it's something that you know we've thought about a lot as we've done our digital organizing within PPP we can tweet at Kirkland and Ellis i can't force the chairman of Kirkland and Ellis to sit down and take a meeting with me but i can definitely tweet about them i can definitely bring attention to their unfair labor practices i can start a name and shame campaign And they're going to have to deal with the consequences of that, whether they like it or not. So I do think we're seeing the ways in which it has enabled deeper connections. It's enabled um, more strategic organizing. And also, it's made it more accessible for folks. As we think about, certainly now in the era of COVID, where going to a protest, showing up outside of the state capitol is not an option for everybody, we also think about who was shut out from that in person activism before, whose voices weren't able to be heard when it required. Some degree of physical proximity. And I think now having the ability to engage digitally is really opening up organizing spaces for far more people than have been able to be involved before.
0: Can you tell me about going back a few years uh, with the People's Parity Project? How did you guys brainstorm and come up with the idea to tweet at the big firms? And what other other, uh, ways to get your cause out did you consider before you settled on tweeting?
1: So the way we thought about it, right, is it wasn't an either or. We've definitely been doing, and again, despite all of the virtues of digital organizing that I will shout to the rooftops, um, we've also been doing in-person organizing, right? And that's also critical here. I think that we had to have people, we've had people in front of the big firms protesting. We've had in-person organizing sessions that I I think do have immense value in terms of forming community, um, getting people excited, bringing new people in. But I'll be honest, it was kind of a no-brainer for us when we were thinking about how do we get the attention of, of a Kirkland and which is our original, um, our first campaign. It was clear that it was going to be far more effective to do that on social media than any other way. And I think it's the benefit of having you know, younger attorneys and law students in these fights is they're thinking about what is the new technology. They're not thinking about what are the organizing tactics from 30 years ago. They're thinking about what do I know? And what we know is that name and shame campaigns on social media are highly effective. Um, We've been seeing that for years now. And so this is not necessarily the outgrowth of some huge strategy session about what's the best way to pressure these firms. It was really like, oh yeah, of course we're going to do it on Twitter. And of course, right, it's Twitter. It's not Instagram. It's not Facebook. Twitter is where this type of organizing work happens. Although I will say that after everything this weekend, we are pretty sure we will now need to get a TikTok account, which will be a full (laughs) new adventure.
0: Well, why don't you tell our listeners about that a bit?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think this weekend we saw that technology is continuing to evolve. And I'll say as a 28-year-old, I'm feeling behind the times when it comes to the new social media trends, Um, looking at the ways in which youth organizers around the world were able to disrupt um, a presidential rally via TikTok and via strategic organizing on TikTok, that's that's unheard of. That's a completely new form of organizing. That's something that they were able to fly under the radar and do something successfully because people in their mid to late 20s and beyond haven't caught up. And I think that's, again, as we think about why do you need to have law students and new attorneys engaged in these efforts, it's because that technology is going to continue to change. The fights that matter are going to continue to change. and when we need to lead a whatever comes after TikTok campaign, I want people who are actually familiar with the technology doing
0: that. Well, do you know, I'm not familiar with TikTok either, other than I have it, but I just I don't really subscribe to anyone and I definitely haven't posted my own videos yet. Um, is TikTok, is it something that it's not permanent, like Snapchat or an Instagram story, or can it be permanent? Because one of the things that fascinates me with activism right now is if you put the information up in a story, I feel like it's hard to be tracked by people in power. And I I personally, I would hate being tasked with tracking Instagram stories or any kind of thing that's not permanent that I can't search with a hashtag.
1: My understanding, and I could have this totally wrong, is that there's a way to make your TikToks temporary. I think that you can have them up there kind of the way like an Instagram post would be so it lasts. But with the youth organizers um, disrupting Donald Trump's rally, my understanding is that they were setting them to delete after 24 or 48 hours. So they Mm -hmm. were less traceable.
0: Okay. And do you think, I mean, I suppose they are now, but have people in power and the people who work for them, have they even thought about tracing digital activism in information that's not permanent?
1: I've got to believe that if they weren't before Saturday, they are now. Uh And right. I think that it's, There are other, so thinking about all of the different ways as we think about our digital organizing and digital organizing more broadly, some of it you want to be permanent, right? We want to Mm -hmm. have a Twitter hashtag that will be out there that we can revive if necessary, that will get attention and spread and be really public, right? So when we're doing our name and change campaigns of law firms that are utilizing unjust labor practices, like forced arbitration, we want that to get a lot of attention. We are sending out press releases about the use of a Twitter hashtag, right? So that you want to last. In the type of organizing that we saw over the weekend, right? that's more, um, you want it to be under the radar. You want it to be over Slack or Signal or Instagram stories or not permanent TikTok videos, right? Because that's how you're going to get people to engage in a mass surprise action. And that's a, that's a very different type of organizing. It's a very different strategy, but they both absolutely have their place and I think are critical to this new wave of activism that we're seeing.
0: We have seen uh, the big firms and in some cases the corporations react to activism your group has done. Do you see or have you seen the courts reacting and being influenced by the digital activism as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right now we are, last week we saw John Roberts come in with the liberals on DACA. John Roberts coming in with the liberals on the LGBTQ Title VII cases. This is not a coincidence, right? This is the result of John Roberts's fear that a Democratic administration is going to come in and radically transform the way the federal courts are structured, We saw this, I think, we saw this in the switch in time in FDR's administration. It was a different type of pressure. Um, It was, you know, pressure from an earlier era. We're seeing it now updated for 2020. We're seeing the pressure campaigns on social media. We're seeing the ways in which activists and party insiders are starting to talk about the need for court reform, the resurgence of the term pack the court, the high levels of public support that we're seeing for court reform. John Roberts can read read the polls as well as anybody. He can see the conversations that are happening. We know at least Elena Kagan is on Twitter in some form or another. So I absolutely think we're seeing the results of this. The problem is, right, what what happens when that pressure stops? It's not enough for six months of a Pack the Courts campaign to lead to two good decisions from the Supreme Court when the rights of people throughout the country are dependent on on what that court does. So it's not enough, but I do think we are starting to see the ways that it works. The other thing that I would add on that is that people are engaged to some extent around the Supreme Court. You don't see the same pressure around the district courts. You don't even see the same pressure around the appellate courts. You're not seeing the same pressure around the state courts. A lot of harm is done by those lower courts, but it's not getting the attention. It's not getting the digital mobilization. It's not getting people out protesting in front of buildings. So when we think about what the role of public pressure is in influencing the judiciary, I do think we need to acknowledge that absent a massive education campaign about the importance of the lower courts, we're not going to see pressure working in the same way because we're not getting that pressure.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I wanted to uh, discuss with you your bar exam plans and how they have changed in light of COVID-19. We'll be right back. As the ability to accept payments online becomes an increasingly essential part of your practice, LawPay provides your firm with a proven and trusted solution. With LawPay, you receive a simple, secure way to accept client credit cards and e-check payments from anywhere. LawPay understands unique compliance requirements placed on attorneys, which is why their solution was developed specifically to correctly separate earned and unearned fees and protect the IOLTA accounts from any third party debiting. Giving you peace of mind that your transactions are always handled correctly. Visit lawpay.com/slash ABA to learn more. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and you're listening to a special series of the ABA Journals Asked and Answered, which looks at how lawyers and for today's show, a recent law school graduate, are dealing with professional and personal changes brought by the coronavirus. Joining me today is Molly Coleman a 2020 Harvard Law School graduate and a co-founder of the People's Parity Project. Molly, you are postponing taking the bar. Tell me about your decision on that.
1: Yeah, so like most law grads, I won't say that I was excited to spend this summer studying for the bar, but certainly that's always been my intention. I plan to sit for the bar here in Minnesota. Then when COVID hit, it became clear that there was no real plan from the Bar Association about what was going to happen with the bar exam. We're seeing jurisdictions saying that they'll move forward as planned despite the fact that gatherings of that size aren't legal in many states. So who knows if they'll actually be able to move forward at the end of July. We're seeing states that are pushing their bar exams ever later. So we're looking at early September, late September, early October. We're seeing jurisdictions that are fail- failing to communicate any information at all. Jurisdictions that are planning to move their bar exam online, which means that they'll no longer be a UBE states. So what we're seeing is a complete hodgepodge of reactions to the COVID-19 crisis. And for me, it wasn't realistic to spend some indefinite amount of time studying for a bar exam that I would maybe, maybe not be able to take at some point in the near slash more distant future. I'm going into public interest work. I'm staying with the People's Parity Project post-graduation. I can't take six months to study for the bar. And I also can't take two months to study for a bar exam that isn't going to happen. There's... So much uncertainty that people are forced to make really, really challenging decisions, knowing that they could absolutely be making the wrong decision, but having very few options. And for me, I feel lucky in that I'll be running a nonprofit. I would love to be barred. I don't need to be barred. So I have a little bit of flexibility. That's certainly not the case for people who are going into jobs where they have to have passed the bar in order to actually do the work that they were hired or would be hired to do. So I think that one thing that I'm thinking about is, while it's frustrating for me, and I'm disappointed, and certainly I will say my parents are disappointed that I'm not taking the bar this summer, I'm actually in a really privileged position compared to so many other people who, who don't know if they will be able to work because states have not actually put together a concrete plan for what they'll be doing with the bar.
0: As you say, your situation is unique, but I'm curious still, did you have some anxiety about deciding not to take the bar just because it's not something people traditionally do?
1: Absolutely. I mean, (laughs) right. I I just graduated from law school. I'm as risk averse as the next person. Um, It is scary to have spent many hundreds of thousands of dollars or taken out hundreds of thousands of dollars of loans, invested three years of my life into pursuing a degree that if I'm not able to take the bar is virtually worthless. There's, I think, you know, you hear the stories from people, again, I will say hearing stories from my dad of people who don't take the bar right away and then end up never taking the bar, right? Because you have to take time off from work to study. You have to do it on your own without the communal support that you have if you're taking it right after graduation with most of your peers. So it's a little scary. I don't love being in the situation, but trying to, trying to make the best out of it while, you know, to the extent I can.
0: So it sounds like your father is an attorney as well. He is an attorney.
1: He is very pro taking the bar.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How um, can you tell us a bit on how, how you've navigated those discussions and ultimately decided to do what was right for you?
1: Yeah. Well, again, thinking about the many ways in which I'm in a fortunate position. So I had my trepidations about signing up for the bar you know, thinking I could maybe just start working right away, started to have those conversations, lots of pushback from people in my life. But then in early April, we developed a plan for the System Summer Institute, which is an initiative between the People's Parity Project, Justice Catalyst, and the Systemic Justice Project, which has taken up all of my time and then some throughout the summer. And that feels responsive to the urgencies of the moment and is work that has to be done right now. It's immediate. It's valuable and it's certainly worth switching up your plans for. So I will say that once I had um, that in the works, it made it easier to finish the conversations about how I will be taking the bar in February.
0: And do you think, are you unique of a Harvard grad or an Ivy League grad from law school that you're just deciding to postpone it until February? Or is this more common than people might think if it doesn't uh, affect them directly?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think it is. I think it is more common than people think. I think that what I've been hearing from practicing attorneys and folks who have been in the profession for longer is they're not totally up to speed on how challenging this moment is for recent graduates. And I don't mean to, you know, pull out the world's biggest violin for law school graduates in 2020, certainly not Ivy League law school graduates in 2020. But I will say that. There are real, real challenges here. People are thinking about how are they going to pay their bills if they can't get barred and can't get a job? At the same time, how will they pay bills if they need to take off December and January to study for the February bar exam? So people are being forced to make really challenging calculations right now. And as a result of that, I think we are we are starting to see people who are saying, I can't do it. I can't, plan and start studying for a bar exam that might not even happening. So I'm just going to wait until even next summer when hopefully we'll have some stability and and the bar will have had a chance to really figure out a plan because frankly, they have not, they have not adequately done that yet.
0: What are they doing instead? I mean, I would imagine a lot of your classmates have clerkships and I admit, I don't know if those would require bar passes or not. I mean, I guess they can't, right? (laughs) But what are the plans to do instead? Because as you said, you have a unique situation.
1: Yeah, so I think lots of people are, you know, those who are clerking are able to put it off for a year. Um, Some folks who have fellowships are able to put it off for a year. I think the big firms are, in some cases, have more flexibility. You know, when you have 120 incoming associates, they're just able to let people work without being barred for some period of time, especially given the uncertainty in states like New York. And then other people are saying, what can I do that's responsive to this moment? And maybe that's totally scrapping the plans that I had, but working in community with others. And maybe it's working in an organizing job for a year to support an equitable response to COVID-19, rather than going straight into public defense or legal aid work. Um, And for those who have the ability to do that, they're able to push the bar again, but not everybody has that luxury. And so it I just think about all the ways in which all of this is amplifying the disparities that exist within the legal profession. um, And that certainly is one of them.
0: Now, you were saying that you plan to work for the People's Parity Project going forward. Where does your funding come from for that?
1: Yeah, so we're very fortunate um, to have received generous grant support from a couple of different organizations. And we also just were uh, um, informed that we received a public service venture fund seed grant from Harvard Law School. So I'm really, really fortunate that that will enable us to both bring me on as a full-time staff member and continue our organizing work throughout the next year.
0: Okay. And when are you starting with that position, or is it already started?
1: Um, f- formally, not for a few weeks. In actuality, it's been several months. I think um, as soon as we launched the System Summer Institute, this became, this became a full-time job, and I was lucky that finals were pass-fail, so... Enabled me to, I've been, you know, been working full time for a couple of months now.
0: Ah, so basically, when this started, you started working full time with that, yeah, unofficially. Yep. Um, tell me about what you just mentioned—the System Summer Institute.
1: Yeah. So, right around, you know, it wasn't early March, but late March, early April, when it became clear that the pandemic was going to continue throughout the summer, that we were going to be operating in this remote world and this financially precarious world for some time to come, law students started losing their summer jobs. So especially public interest organizations that didn't have the technology to manage people remotely, that were responding to the massive national crisis, felt that they didn't have the capacity to provide intern programming, that they didn't have the ability to really do their jobs as supervisors. So we saw a huge number of law students losing their summer positions. Again, especially this hit public interest students more heavily, which then impacts their ability to get fellowships post-graduation and makes what is a hard path within the legal profession an even harder path. So we saw this need from law students for summer work. At the same time, we were starting to see immense need from organizations that are responding to the COVID-19 crisis and the inequities that it's exposing or making more apparent. Um, We, started a rapid response network through PPP that was trying to match law students with those organizations who had research questions, who needed folks to do a know-your-rights material, who needed infographics on how to access unemployment insurance. So we knew that those organizations had need. They just didn't feel that they had capacity to bring on full-time summer legal interns. So what we came together with Justice Catalyst and the Systemic Justice Project to do was to try to meet both of those needs. So we now have 117 full-time legal fellows who are working with the Institute and then another 130 or so part-time Summit Lawyering Corps members. We're partnering with over 60 organizations and each of our fellows are placed with one to two organizations that are in some way responding to the COVID-19 crisis. Um, They're with them somewhere between 10 and 30 hours a week. And then they're with us for the other five to 10 hours a week focusing on systemic inequities and how do we right these deep, long-existing wrongs that have been, again, in some ways, newly exposed by COVID-19? And specifically, what is the role of law students and lawyers in helping to end these deep injustices? So we're excited about that. It's been a big adventure pulling it all together. And I think we've been working on it for about five weeks before we had 117 people start with us full-time. So it was a big lift, but I think we're really starting to see the ways in which both law students and legal organizations are. Um, feeling like this is a this is a good thing to be doing this summer.
0: Are they paid uh, the law students? Are they paid through their school stipends?
1: So for the most part, yes. Um, students are eligible. You know, because we're a five hundred one c three, students are eligible for funding through their law schools if their schools have public interest funding. Some students are also doing this for externship credit. And then we have a small ability to provide small stipends to folks whose schools don't offer some public interest funding.
0: Okay, and do you see this project continuing or is this just a one-time thing for the summer?
1: That's an open question right now, I'll be honest. I think that certainly there are some needs of this specific moment that I don't know that those will exist come summer 2021 or 2022. But in other ways, I think that, Having a summer program that focuses both on doing important work and also on having these bigger conversations that you so often aren't able to have in law schools is a really valuable endeavor. And I think it's something that people feel like is unique and is is worth pursuing even as we move on from this current stage of the COVID-19 crisis. I also think that you know our ability to bring together hundreds of law students from around the country Is something that you don't often see in public interest legal work. That's something that you might experience if you go to a big firm for a summer where your summer class is 120 people. But to have folks from over 70 law schools come together for this intensive educational activist experience feels pretty valuable. And it feels like something that might be worth pursuing moving forward.
0: Okay. Now, and you said you've been working on this for quite some time because you had pass-fail grades. Um, I'm curious, how did you celebrate your law school graduation and just that end-of-the-year events? Because you couldn't celebrate in a traditional way. You were probably back in um, Minnesota, I would imagine, when they would traditionally take place. So how did you approach that?
1: Yeah, I'll be honest. I think it was a little sad. You think about all the ways in which you usually get closure at the end of law school, um, a chance to really be with the people who you went through this challenging experience with, lots of parties at the end of the year, Um, and we didn't get any of that, right? So luckily, people are adept at Zoom at this point, so we had some fun section Zooms and whatnot, but it does feel like you know, I took a morning off, I watched the graduation ceremony in my parents' backyard, and then I went back to work that afternoon, which mm. had we had a real graduation, I don't I don't think I would have gone back to work that afternoon. So so it does feel a little anticlimactic. At the same time, it it's still fun, right? It's still graduation from law school. I
0: They can't I, take it away. I laughed from you. I cried. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And my diploma's in the mail, so nothing they can do about that now.
0: Right. Now, besides graduating from law school, the other big change is you are getting married in a few months. And I wanted to ask you, what's it like getting ready to get married in this time?
1: Yet another trip. Um, Uh So I was supposed to get married September 12th um, to my fiance, who is just about to start his second year at Michigan Law School. Mm -hmm. We then in the midst of all of this, you know, the idea of bringing even a small group together for a wedding and having to spend the next two weeks on the edge of my seat, making sure that nobody had gotten sick at the wedding. That's not mm-hmm. fun. That is not mm-hmm. worth it. So we've been able to postpone to next year.
0: Oh, you mean 2021? 2021. Yep. Oh, wow. That off. Huh? Yeah. Huh? Well, it should be fine then. <laughs> what a time. Well, did you originally plan to live in Michigan while he goes to law school and do your job there? Because if you didn't, now you can, or he doesn't. I don't know what Michigan's plans are yet for the fall semester, but I guess the upside is you have a lot of choices. Almost about where many. you can. So live. I was,
1: <laughs> I was originally thinking I would go to DC. That I was thinking maybe I would stay in Boston. He's a, he would be in Michigan, but I would be able to go visit. Um, and then all of a sudden. COVID happened, everything was up in the air, so many questions about what's next. And so we signed this lease in St. Paul and said, you know, there is a complete lack of certainty about basically every aspect of life right now. So we are going to have an apartment for at least six months.
0: (laughs) Did you choose St. Paul in part because it's home, but also it's less expensive, I would imagine, than D.C. or Chicago? 100%
1: yeah, it's, it's home and I want to be here. And again, given everything happening, I'm so grateful to be here. But again, going into nonprofit work um, with the law school debt that I have, I will say that the lower cost of living is a huge appeal. And I think people, again, are, as we think about what remote work could look like for a year or even longer, people are starting to think that maybe maybe New York, Boston, D.C. are not not where I need to be right now.
0: Well, so I'm thinking, though. so if your fiancé is going into his second year and you just graduated, you've already had a long-distance relationship, but with COVID, you've started living together again, right?
1: A weird COVID positive,
0: definitely. Uh, how has that worked out? Because I, mean, I could see where it could be great, but it's also it's stressful and you're in each other's space.
1: Yeah. Um, it has been a very fun adventure. We, you know, we're both working from home. We're in a one-bedroom apartment, but... <laughs> I could not feel luckier. It's fun. It is. We did not expect to be living together this summer. I feel lucky that we are and are going through this with another person, have this great space. So although we are a little bit in each other's hair at some times, it's it's mostly been a very good thing.
0: Well, and I think that's a sign you're meant for each other. So congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. What's like one thing you miss the most about life before the pandemic?
1: I miss being in person and especially for PPP. We have worked together intensely for several years now. You know, our original founders are all staying on our steering committee for our board of directors. We work together a lot. We brainstorm. We celebrate our wins. We go bigger than we would alone. And some of that you can recreate over Zoom, but some of it you really can't. And I think. I also just have been thinking a lot about how you bring in new law students into organizing ed- efforts and really talk to them about the ways in which our legal profession is flawed and, and has wrecked a lot of harm on people throughout the country. And it's it's just harder to have those conversations on Zoom. It's harder to build trust. It's harder to build relationships. And so I do miss all of that. And I've been thinking a lot about what that will look like moving forward as we kind of settle into this new life for at least a while.
0: Do you see with your work on a gender issues in the law, do you see that some things coming out of this could be good for institutional gender bias? Um, one thing I'm hearing is that people are seeing how well working remotely can work for many people. But are there other things? I'm, I've been curious about these virtual um Some are associate positions, because I'm thinking, oh, well, it's probably harder to sexual harass someone virtually than in person. I mean, not always, but (laughs) um, a lot of the stuff that goes with gender in the workplace, maybe it's not as much of an issue remotely, or maybe it is. I don't know, but it's been things I've been curious about.
1: Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And I think so much of it feels unknown. I think that we as a profession have an incredible ability to create new problems. So while I do think there is some reason to think that we could be moving in a more equitable direction as people have more flexibility, as people, as we see that you can work remote and it's really not that hard, Um, when we, I think that's an interesting point about the lack of sexual harassment over Zoom. Certainly when you're thinking about law firm summers, you're not doing the booze-filled parties that you would be if you were in person. I think there's a chance that this, you know, starts to at least rectify some of those wrongs that we see or that harm that we see perpetrated within the profession. I'm skeptical, though. I think that there's that in order to really create change on some of these, these deep inequities that we see, there needs to be a real reckoning with the root causes. And I don't know that moving to Zoom alone will be enough to force that reckoning, I also have been thinking about the ways in which we'll see more lawyer-created harm as we move forward. Thinking about um, the role, as always, of that forced arbitration will play in ensuring that people don't have access to relief if they experience um, workplace harm as a result of COVID-19. I think that we'll continue to see the legal profession not necessarily being a force for good in the world if we don't if we don't force that deep reckoning. And I don't know that that the virus will will do that.
0: Okay, and. Are there some things you don't miss about life before COVID-19?
1: Um, dress pants. Mm. I definitely don't miss. I love wearing jeans or sweatpants all day, every day, because nobody will ever see them. I also, whew, it's hard. It's hard. I miss I miss a lot more than I don't miss. Mm-hmm. I think, gotcha. you know, there's adjusting and acclimating, but this this world does not feel as good as the one we had six months ago.
0: Gotcha. Well, Molly, thank you so much for joining us today. It was great speaking with you. Thanks so much, Stephanie. Yes. And listeners, thank you for joining us as well. If you like what you heard today, please find us and rate us in Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting app. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journals Asked and Answered.